The year 1953, a plane touches down at Smithies Airport in Sydney. On board is an American named Lee Gordon. The Australian music scene will never be the same again. From then until now, these are the stories. Hey there, this is Josh Ersam and you're listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. This episode is on leading 70s prog rock band, Ayers Rock. Lady Montego, take me for a ride in your car. Out in the country on a road, baby, we could go far, yeah. You know you promised to take me by Saturday night. Walked out the door, girl. Ayers Rock were a band infused with equal parts of jazz and soulful funkadelia. Each member contributed musicianship of the highest order. Few Australian bands before or since have been able to come close to creating the soundscapes that Ayers Rock were able to record. They were the first Mushroom Records signed band to break internationally. When Michael Godinsky struck a deal with leading US record company A&M, it became Mushroom's first big break internationally, and it then gave Godinsky the credibility to strike even bigger deals into the future, and become a record label with worldwide reach. Ayers Rock even got to record an album in the famed record plant studios in LA. It just so happened that none other than Stevie Wonder and David Bowie were also there recording their own albums at the time, and they were dropping to check out what these lads from Down Under were coming up with. Ayers Rock's inventiveness gained them a tick of approval from both these superstars. The band was formed midway through 1973 by guitarist Ray Burden, who had previously co-written the anthemic song I Am Woman with Helen Reddy. I am woman, hear me roar, in numbers too big to ignore, and I know too much to go back and pretend, cause I've heard it all before, and I've been down there on the floor, no one's ever gonna keep me. The drummer was Mark Kennedy with Duncan Maguire on bass, and they had both been in a number of bands prior to forming Ayers Rock, including King Harvest, Spectrum, and Doug Parkinson in Focus. Shortly after forming, another guitarist, Jimmy Doyle, was added to the lineup, along with Cole Lothman on sax. Jimmy Doyle was one of Australia's finest rock guitar virtuosos, with his work in Ayers Rock bringing his creativity to the fore. Cole Lothman joined the band to mainly play saxophone but also contributed piano, flute and clarinet parts, and he could also ably add to the band's vocals, considering Cole's singing background. Prior to stepping away from the microphone as a lead singer and taking up the sax, Cole had been the lead vocalist for the Deltones, and is the main voice on hits such as Hanging Five. Oh well it's early in the morning and it's time to make a start And I put my poly surfboard on the rack upon my car I head down to the surfside where the waves are breaking fine I'm gonna catch a mountain but I won't go down the mine You gotta walk the plank, ride the hook Corner left and right and keep it nice and tight And now the time is drawing near, you're moving down the wall Now steady as she goes, you got your toes upon the nose And now you're hanging by and come a little bit closer. Come on, 
However, despite his chart success, he bid a fond farewell to Pee Wee and the group and set about becoming one of Australia's finest exponents of the saxophone. By March 1974, Ray Burden had left the band and he was replaced by Chris Brown, who had previously been in Melbourne's soul and blues band Python Lee Jackson. In this episode, we speak to Cole Lothlin about his time in Ayers Rock and some of the amazing experiences the band undertook. They were often categorised as serious musicians in the prog rock era. However, as you'll soon hear, they like to cut loose. Interviewing Cole is awesome Aussie songs producer, Sheldon the Kangaroo Kid. The interview took place prior to the passing of the late great Michael Godinski, and I only mention this because they speak about Michael in the present tense. This interview comes from our sister podcast, All Australian Music Stories, where we take a look at Cole's entire career over three episodes, and we reckon they're well worth a listen. Okay, that's enough from me. Here's Ayers Rock. In 1973, you joined Ayers Rock, a band that were going to lay claim as Australia's leading jazz rock band. You were one of the first bands signed to Michael Godinski's Mushroom Records. How did the signing with the Mushroom label come about? Well, when, when I joined Ayers Rock, it was, um, it was, I'd come from London. I'd, I was in London at the time, uh, and I come, Jimmy Doyle rang me up and said, look, we've got this terrific band, you know, with Mark Kennedy and, and Duncan Maguire, and, you know, would, you know, do you want to come back? And, uh, you know, it was getting, it was too cold in England anyway. <laughs> I'd been there for a year, and I couldn't have stood another winter, I don't think. And so this sounded pretty good, so went back, and, uh, you know, the band started off sort of pretty much like a, um, a rehearsal band. You know, we weren't really doing much in the way of gigs, and then we started doing a couple of gigs, and then, of course, the Mushroom thing just come a little later than that. With Ayers Rock, you record the first album named Big Red Rock. You recorded this album over two days at the Armstrong Studios in Melbourne before a live audience of friends and family to think you laid this album down and in two days is incredible how did you achieve this oh look we we just went in and we did it all very very quickly because by that time by the time we recorded we'd uh, really been doing a lot of gigs and a lot of playing you know back in those days you know musicians work every day there was a musician's job then was a full-time job. Now it's a bit of a part-time job uh, and people often have other jobs other than music. Well, back then you just had music, that was it. So we were playing yeah, all the time, doing gigs all the time and never stopped. So we were match fit, you know, we were really fit. We were ready to go. And so we went in there, we just recorded it. It was in front of an audience live uh, there was, you know, no overdubbing and, you know, it was all pretty much down straight away. And that was it. What we heard was what we got. It was all, we wanted to get that live feeling that we were able to get on stage and uh, try and transfer it to recording, you know, which is often hard. And you guys were known as a, uh, a group of musicians, musicians, a serious band. But there's a song on the album, Crazy Boys, the hamburger song. When you listen to a song like that, it's obviously you guys didn't take yourselves too seriously. <laughs> Definitely not. There's a great story behind that. We uh, 
Jimmy Doyle and myself, when Jimmy was a backing guitarist for the Deltones, that's how we come to meet. He, he was our guitarist. And uh, we'd always talk about music and jazz and different stuff and about one day playing together. And on the way back from uh, Wollongong, we used to do this gig down there and we'd come back and we'd go to this hamburger joint at Central and to get a hamburger at like, you know, one o'clock in the morning or something. We'd come back and we'd go in there and they, they were Greek guys, you know, and they were funny, you know, and they'd, they'd have this funny, hello, please, hello, mate, how are you, you know? You, what, what do you want, Wayne, please, you know? You want a hamburger or you want a fish and chips or what do you want? And, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd start doing the, well, mate, give us a, give us a, you know, uh, a glass of fish and chips, thanks, you know, and stuff like <laughs> yep. silly stuff, you know, and they'd laugh, oh, you boys are crazy, you're crazy boys. So that's how, that's how the title come okay, up. Okay, yep. It was dedicated to them, really, to the hamburger joint, which burnt down sometime later. It burnt down. But they were funny guys. They really were good sports, you know, and, and good cooks. <laughs> there's a line in it, you know, ordering a Gadinsky burger is a... Uh, yeah, the Gadinsky burger. Yeah, that come in there. Would it be tasty or a bit tough, the Gadinsky burger? Uh, yeah. Well, uh, Michael took it, you know, he he took it pretty well. You know, Gadinsky burger, hold the bacon, because he's Jewish, of course. Oh, okay. So, you know, yes, that course. was the joke. And then Dr. Hop on top of us was the other, the Greek gynecologist, he was the the other. So it was pretty silly and it's a very simple tune with a riff and and just virtually hardly any lyrics, but uh, we had fun with it. It was crazy and we were able to use a lot of uh, electronic gadgets, which on the recording here, it's totally bizarre. Yes. Uh, it's going to be one of the most bizarre strong songs ever recorded in Australia. Yeah, well, it's so. pretty pretty out there. Yeah, but 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 we had fun. So that's where the uh, origin of the okay. story comes from. The hamburger joint. The song's dedicated to a hamburger joint that burned down in Sydney. Presenting the crazy boys.
far removed from the three-minute pop song uh, that you had previously sung with the Deltones and, and the vocal groups, Ayers Rock had the luxury of being able to expand on musical ideas. Ayers Rock never appeared to be in a rush to finish a song until all avenues had been explored. This must have been a great musical freedom to have. It was very creative, you know. It was a very creative band. We had a terrific combination. Mark Kennedy on drums, who's fabulous, and Duncan and him had played, Duncan McGuire and Electric Bass, who'd played together in other bands, uh, Spectrum and uh, King Harvest and other bands, they'd played together. So they were rock solid together. That bass and drums were just just like one person playing. And uh, we had Jimmy Doyle, who was phenomenal feel on the guitar, Chris Brown on the other guitar, and myself. And it just seemed to gel. It was a combination that once we got together, we found we really had something. We could read each other's mind on stage. And so there was a lot of improvisation. I think that was one of the things that separated us from a lot of the other bands. They improvised a little, but we improvised a lot. And so some of our tunes would go for, you know, ages. Most people would be doing, you know, four-minute songs. Our songs would go for 10 or 11 minutes. Well, there's some songs that have intros that go for, you know, one or two minutes at a time. That's just the intros of the, uh, the song. Let's have a listen to Nostalgic Blues. Remember, this is all recorded live. All of Ayers Rock are going off here and just take a listen to Jimmy Doyle. Wow. Nostalgic blues. Yeah. 
And in regards to the title track of the album, you wrote the song Big Red Rock. When listening to a song, if, if you close your eyes at the opening of this song, you could almost smell the rain falling on Uluru as you know, as the lightning and the thunder rumbles by. Being able to produce such vivid musical landscapes must have been satisfying to you. It was. It, it, it really was. When when I wrote that, of course, you know, the band was Airs Rock, so that was the, you know, the title was already there. And because the rock was big and does go red, uh, you know, at sundown, it gave a picture of what it would be like. I've never actually been to Ayers Rock. I've flown over it, uh, but I've never actually, I wanted to go there one day, but I've never, I've flown over and seen it, but I've never gone there. But I studied a bit of Aboriginal music recordings to listen to things, to try and get an idea of what their music was all about and to try and get some of that influence, if you want. And then Jimmy Doyle was fabulous at making a didgeridoo sound on his guitar. He had this pedal that he used, the wah-wah pedal and, and, and a sort of a distortion and stuff. Stuff. And he could he could really make the thing sound like a didgeridoo. So he used to do that as a bit of a joke. Before I started writing the thing, I heard him go, wow, wow, you know, doing this stuff. So when I got the idea for it, I thought, oh yeah, we'll we'll get him to do the didgeridoo sound. And and then the sound sort of evolved, and the arrangement I had to work on to get the structure of the arrangement and 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 get the melodies and get the tunes and all stuff sorted out. So it just evolved.
we inspired each other, that band. I think that's what happened. I think when you're inspired and you're working with people that uh, you admire musically and that you know can do anything musically, which is more important because you can write things, but if people can't play them, well, you can't get it played. You need to know what the person is capable of doing. And we knew each other's uh, musical, you know, uh, ability. So you sort of had limitless boundaries amongst the group. Yeah, yeah. and But a lot of the sounds, you know, we had electronic sounds. We were all wired up, you know, going through amplifiers. I was, the saxophone was going through. I, I When I worked on stage, I worked like a guitar player. I had a wah-wah pedal and I had, you know, a phaser and I had you know, all these other stuff uh, connected into an amp. So I played and I had my little pickups on the saxophone to pick up the sound. So... Uh, we all had that, those sort of gimmicks and stuff, you know. I don't think it would have sounded like that without that. You couldn't do it acoustically. You know? This song's titled Going Home. Stop! 
After the release of Big Red Rock, Michael Godinski heads to America with a stack of his label's records, including bands such as Skyhooks. He presents his lot to the president of A&M Records, Jerry Moss, and the only group Moss is interested in signing is Ayers Rock. What was Godinski's reaction? Well, it was one of shock, I think. I mean, I have to say that. I mean, Michael went over with, uh, um, with a whole, you know, bunch of stuff of mushroom artists and uh, the artists of the time and I think he he liked our band but you know we were a bit way out I think for Michael you know we we sort of were a bit extreme I think I think he he liked it but it wasn't his thing and so I think when he went there we'd done the album and I I think he thought the album was good and all that but I I I think it, he, I, I I really believe he thought they would pick something else that's my opinion of it because he was very uh he was very vocal when he rang up you know that when he went to Jerry Moss and Herb Alpert and um both of those guys uh, were sort of jazz lovers you know the A&M label was had some tremendous super tramp and you know they didn't really have pop any bubblegum stuff it wasn't wasn't really they they had pretty sophisticated stuff on there and Herb, Herb Alpert was with the Tijuana Brass and was a jazz trumpet player so um when they brought out album to I think Michael probably you know gave it to them and said you know here they are and they went through them and they liked ours and anyway, he was surprised, I think, because he rang uh, Jimmy Doyle up from L.A. And, of course, it was, you know, morning in L.A. And it was, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning here or something, whatever. And he read, Jimmy, Jimmy. He said, you'll never believe it. They liked the album. Jimmy said, well, so they should. Because, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, Michael was, he was quite surprised. I, uh, he was thrilled. Of course, he was happy that they'd done it because it, it put him you know, in America, and it's sort of he got his foot in the door, and the rest is history. He's been a very successful man since, but he I think he was surprised. Yeah. I think he was, yeah. yeah. And so, Ayers Rock now heads to the USA with a $60,000 budget to record your second album, Beyond. Now, $60,000 back in 1974 was an absolute small fortune. You guys must have been beside yourselves with this opportunity. Yeah, that was right. When, when we arrived there, they picked us up in a stretch limo. Uh, and they had a cooler thing, like an esky type thing, in the back with Foster's beer, the big ones, the great, you know, those big they export ones, okay, the yes. great big sort of bigger than a normal can, like about twice as big as a can. So then it was uh, the royal treatment after that. Yeah, it was uh, fantastic. The studio was, you know, amazing. Well, you mentioned the studio, and you head into the uh, famed record plant in LA. Uh, the recording situation must have been a little bit different to what you'd previously been used to in the in the Deltones and the Crescent days, you know, at the uh, festival studios at Piermont. Oh, look... <laughs> Look, a big step up from there, but, you know, recording studios in Sydney by the time we got to L.A. were pretty good. It was the early 70s and things were good, but when we got to L.A. and went into the record plant, it was like stepping into a spaceship, you know, and going somewhere else. It was, the sound was unbelievable. The equipment, the studio, the acoustics of the studio, the fact that they were so fussy about when we recorded Beyond, because we'd all recorded Big Red Rock, so we recorded Beyond the second album in record plant they were so fussy because i play a bit of keyboard so um we used fender Rhodes on a lot of the tracks just little bits 
and pieces I play. And so, you know, they'd get one. They used to hire, they hired stuff in LA. They had these big hire companies that hired anything musically. So they never had anything in the studio. They didn't have a Rhodes there. They had a piano, of course, uh, but they didn't have anything and they didn't have a drum kit and they didn't have anything. They'd hire everything in or the drummer would bring his own kit. In our case, we were visiting. We had no equipment. So it was just fantastic. So, you know, I'd play the electric piano and the guy, the producer would say, no, 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 that one doesn't sound right. So, you know, ring the company, bring another one over. They bought about three pianos over. They were so fussy about things, even with Mark Kennedy's drums, very fussy. And he always, you know, had a great sounding drums. And they, you know, I think they made him change the snare drum or something, got a different sort of snare drum. And Mark was always very particular and got a great sound out of anything. But they were very fussy about the way they set up and all the mics and everything. So it was it was very different. And when you heard the results, and I listened to that album and I've heard it, you know, a few years ago. I haven't listened to that album for a while beyond, but the, the sounds on it are very, very good for the time and uh, really classy. And that was one of the things that I couldn't believe that it was, you know, just fantastic sound. Made you sound better than what you were. Not as good, better. <laughs> So highlighting the environment that you guys are in at the record plant, down the hallway recording an album with Stevie Wonder, Ayers Rock had people dropping in to watch your sessions such as David Bowie and the Eagles. Even even Bowie came back for a second listen apparently. This must have been some of sort of the pinch me moments for you guys. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was, you know, we got a lot of attention because we were doing pretty progressive stuff and I suppose because we were from Australia, they probably thought, well, how, you know, these guys, you know, they're living with kangaroos. <laughs> you know, living in the outback. How do they get to be able to do this? You know, I mean, you know, it was early days for Aussies and uh, we were pretty much one of the first, well, we were the first band to sign an international contract overseas, um, first Australian band. And this has come before the days of LRB and... and oh, yeah, long before that. Yep. You know, when we went there, they, they probably just were curious because Australia hadn't, you know, now Australia's very well known. We got the best, our actors, they pra- were practically taken over over there. Exactly. All the actors... <laughs> And, uh, you know, we've had Olivia Newton-John and Peter Allen and all the rest of the stuff. But then there was virtually no one. So they we got a bit of attention because of that. And then you guys are doing such experimental music as musicians. As you said, they were probably interested to see, well, listen yeah. to these sounds. How are yeah, these well, guys doing this? Fusion music was happening then. You know, there were bands like Miles Davis was doing it, starting to uh, fuse jazz and rock together and then Weather Report. And then so it was the early days of uh, jazz fusion and uh, the fact that I think the fact that we come from Australia was curious that there would be a band being capable of playing at that standard because they probably had a view of Australia like most Americans did back then that you know it was just sort of a place out you know in the some backwater yeah. yeah they didn't know you know they used to think it was Austria sometimes. Okay, you know? yes. You come from, oh, is that Austria? You know, oh, no, it's, a, you know, they didn't really know. But then, you know, I think it's different now. <laughs> and did you um, have much interaction with David Bowie or Stevie Wonder? Did you have any conversations we with went these in, guys? Well, I can't remember ever having any conversation with David Bowie. I know he was there. I saw him in the control booth when we were in the studio. I saw him and recognised him. And somebody said he'd come back a second time, but I didn't see that. But the guys told me that he did. 
Uh, Stevie Wonder, we actually met because Stevie was recording in the, in the studio next to the big one where we were. We were in the big studio because we had strings and everything, um, orchestra and stuff. And uh, Stevie was in the overdub studio, which is a smaller one next to the big main studio. So um, somebody said, oh, come and do you want to meet Stevie Wonder? Or, yeah, okay, yeah, let's go in. So we went in and he was great and he was overdubbing everything. He was, he'd overdubbed drums and he'd overdubbed, you know, some, but he was just doing keyboards when we spoke to him. And, you know, yeah, he was complimenting. He said, oh, you guys sound good or something like that, you know, and, 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 uh, but he was, uh, he was busy doing what he's doing so we weren't in there for too long but we actually got to meet him and shake his hand and uh, it was uh, something special and as one of the musical geniuses of the uh, the 20th century absolutely yeah oh yeah yeah you're in you're well aware you're in the in the company of someone great when when you meet somebody like that so you with the album beyond you write the title track as well as place to go and angel in disguise
You also wrote the arrangements for the band and a 23-piece orchestra featuring the host of top LA musicians. You also conduct the orchestra in the studio. Do you class this album as some of your finest work? Yes, I'd say it's as far as recording my own things, which I haven't done a lot of, uh, apart from uh, what I've done recently with smaller groups, with something big. I did a lot of arranging uh, before I left. You know, I was on staff from 1969 to 72 at Channel 9. Yes, you know, I'm pretty pleased with what went on and um, it certainly was, you know, nice to showcase your own compositions and have a nice big string section and such a great bunch of uh, musicians, you know. I had the top guys, you know, all the guys that have played. A lot of them were older and a lot of them had played on some of the greatest film scores that have come out of America, you know. So I just was a big step up from working with what I'd done in in Sydney. You know, the strings were good here, but they were a lot better over there. Uh, I had the top guys and and um, so it was fantastic. So it was a great opportunity. I'd had, I'd sort of done my apprenticeship, if you want, Channel 9 with, under Bob Beatles Young, who was the musical director of Channel 9 for Bandstand and a lot of other shows. And uh, when I left the Deltones, he said to me, look, he said, there's a job for you if you want it with the staff arrangers, you know, the part-time staff, I can give you, you know, an arrangement and see how you go. And, and then, you know, if it's any good, I'll give you some more. And so I started and they gave me more and I was end up doing, you know, three a week which is a lot of arrangements to do for orchestra because they had strings and they had brass and percussion choir and a lot of it was um covers but so i got i really did my apprenticeship for three years and uh and that was great so i'd learnt how to write through necessity i was pretty much self-taught uh, arranging you know doing things but you know i worked hard and i used to sleep very little and i was doing studio work and playing and arranging and trying to uh, be a family man and trying to do everything at once so it was busy times but you're young so you can do it wouldn't now like to back. do attempt it now yeah. So on, on the album Beyond, there's other songs on the album, such as Song for Darwin and the very funky instrumental with a great title, Catch an Emu.
how did you decide what songs were to be instrumentals and when to add lyrics? Well, Chris wrote that and uh, Chris Brown wrote Catch an Emu and uh, so it was instrumental. I mean, basically songs lead lead themselves to be uh, vocals. You know, sometimes sometimes a song has got a story or usually should have a story and the story usually uh, is the reason for the being of the song whereas an instrumental it doesn't necessarily have to have it has to have a title but the title depends on what the person sees it at it could have several titles whereas if a song it's about something well generally it's got to have a title related to that so um most of the time chris didn't write many instrumentals but um i wrote most of the instrumental stuff uh and place to go was uh was part vocal as well so that would have been the last recording i ever did as a vocalist okay yes yeah yep. that would have been the last one it was not much lyrics in it you know i was never much for writing lyrics i wasn't that good at it i was more better at you know writing the musical part of it Rock got to tour the USA with uh, some of the biggest acts of the day, and these included Backman Turner Overdrive, the Jay Giles Band, and Status Quo. One performance you you did at Seattle was at a stadium with a crowd of thirty five thousand people. Who were you supporting at this show? That's a good. I think it was Backman Turner Overdrive in that one. Yeah, I think it was. Um, I'd have to check. You'd have to check Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Rock article on Wikipedia might tell you. Um, I think it was Backman Turner. Turner Overdrive, we did uh, a lot of, you know, big shows, and that was one of the bigger ones, 35,000. It was amazing. You know, the audiences were fantastic over there. They loved uh, the band. They really, we got incredible reception, and it was very exciting to be playing to, you know, such huge audiences, massive, just you'd look out, and it was like, you know, being in a sporting, well, most of them are sporting arenas. Um, Well, they call us Sea of Humanity. Yeah, it's fabulous. 
the band even got play, paid not to play. You were <laughs> you were scheduled to support Rod Stewart. However, you were paid a you know, a tidy sum and given front row tickets to Rod's show not to perform. What's the story here? And did you guys actually attend the show? Uh, yeah, we, we, we actually got tickets for the show uh, and we got paid $1,000 or something, um, whatever it was, or a fee. What what happened, it was we were supposed to go on the show. Uh, we were scheduled to do the gig, but his setup was so huge and so complicated that they decided it was too hard to reconfigure the stage and all that and and, and change everything and it would take too long to put it all back. So they, they asked us very nicely and, you know, we're okay. Uh, with it by that time we were pretty buggered from being on the road you know we were doing one-nighters traveling across america and part by plane part by road so we i think when we got to that one we were were looking forward to a night's sleep so i think it come at a good time but we went to see the show and he did a great show and he's very professional thoroughly professional and as you can imagine the production was very very good but he used to have you know like great big semi trailers of gears like two big long ones great full of gear that used to travel around and they so the setup his setup was enormous so that was the reason they um it wasn't because there was a clash of music or something and he didn't want a a band like that on it had nothing to do with that this is the title track to the album beyond
Following the release of the Beyond album in 1976 and subsequent tours of Australia and the USA, by the end of 1977, the band had undertaken several lineup changes, and by 1981, when they disbanded, the only mainstays that remained were Jimmy and Chris. The final album they released was Hot Spell on the RCA label in 1980. Sadly, Duncan Maguire died in 1989, aged just 46. Among his many credits, he was co-producer and engineer of the debut In Excess album. Jimmy Doyle also passed away, aged 60, in 2006, and he is remembered as one of Australia's finest guitarists. Separately, Chris, Mark, Cole and Ray all continue to make music, writing, recording, producing and touring with some of the most respected names in Australian music. Let's end the episode with another great song by Ayers Rock from the Big Red Rock album Lady Montego. The lead vocals are by Chris Brown and is one of the band's more radio-friendly songs. Thanks for listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. Thanks to Cole for your time, and thanks to Ayers Rock for the music. Hi, this is Molly. You've just listened to a podcast brought to you by Marcos Promotions, written and produced by my dad, Sheldon the Kangaroo Kip. And presented by Josh Ursum.
This is Molly Kidd saying to my good friend Holly Kirsten, Hit it, girl! Such a 